Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to the Beatles Films Podcast. I'm Matt Looker. I'm Ed Williamson. We're both professional film writers and Fab Four fans and each week we discuss a different movie about starring or inspired by the Beatles. And we've reached the end of season three. This is part two of our two-part discussion on 1968's Yellow Submarine. Hopefully you've already listened to the first part released last week. And we're about to uh, continue our discussion on the film. So let's go straight into it. Um, One of the things that we didn't call out perhaps in our last episode was uh, this film really looks like nothing else that came before or since. Yeah. Right? Like this is a very, very unique style that I think has been parodied since but but hasn't been copied or replicated yeah uh and and i think that's part of its sort of enduring legacy is is the fact that it has such a recognizable design and stylistic tone to it yeah definitely i mean so if you you think about what's going on with animation in the 1960s that is a market that is pretty much entirely dominated by disney so they're releasing things like 101 dalmatians sword in the stone uh, Mary Poppins has its kind of live action and animated mix. There's a Jungle Book as well, uh, with its own little uh, Beatles connection in it with the uh, yeah, vultures. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll do an episode on that one day for yeah. sure. <laughs> <laughs> we're going we're to string this out as we long really as we are. possibly can. <laughs> <laughs> Series fifty-two. Yeah, um, but um, the uh, and sort of Hanna Barbera kind of starting up. So there's a, there's a Yogi Bear film, which is their first feature that comes out in 1964. And then I think there's a Flintstones film a bit later on. But, but so basically, like it's there, there is animation going on all around the world, like particularly in Eastern Europe and uh, a fair amount in Japan as well. Um, but in terms of sort of Hollywood fare, Western fare, if you like, it, it's completely dominated by Disney. Yellow Submarine is quite an anomaly in that regard. Doing an animated film at all is quite bold. Like mm. it would be the kind of thing now animation kind of fits in quite well in more live-action contexts now, by which I don't mean adding animation into live-action film. I mean that it's not at all uncommon these days for 
a, a sitcom, an American sitcom that's been running for ages and has those sort of 22 minute episodes and 24 episodes a year to do something like a, a stop motion episode, you know, yes, like, like commu- yeah, community did one that, of those. Yeah. And uh, it's always sunny in Philadelphia has done, has done one as well. I think sure. um, it's the kind of thing that uh, like, like if it, it fits quite well in, in for a, an adult audience. And I think maybe, and of course, you know, you have, the, you have things like the Simpsons and Futurama, which are intended just as much for adult audiences as they are for uh, children. Um, and also actual adult animation, you know, in terms of South Park, obviously. And, yeah. you know, we've got now Bojack Horseman and yeah. um, Archer. Yeah. And, you know, all those things now. None of this stuff existed back then. No, absolutely. So I, I think at the time it's quite bold uh, for, for them to do this at all. And, you know, perhaps it's one of these things where, you know, we always say, oh, the Beatles changed so much and all this stuff wouldn't have happened without the Beatles. Uh, like in this case, I think, you know, Yellow Submarine did blaze a trail in a sense, but it wasn't particularly the Beatles blazing that trail. They just sort of yeah, you're right. yeah. they said yes to some people who wanted to blaze a trail and then said, yeah, we quite like this and then recorded a bit at the end. <laughs> I guess if you're being generous, you can say that the Beatles being the the band that they were and the personalities they were and having already proven themselves in many ways to want to push boundaries creatively, that allowed the animators sort of the freedom to do a similar thing like as, it, as an inspiration in in the same way that we discussed like the Cirque du Soleil love show in in our All Together Now episode yeah uh, your, your approach to doing anything that's related to the Beatles in a different medium should respect the ideals that that came with the Beatles yeah. in terms of being creative and having freedom of expression so it, yeah. it, it does make sense you know not saying that in the same that we often accuse Paul of doing of claiming credit for someone else's work, <laughs> but if you are being generous, you could say that the the, the spirit that came with the Beatles can often serve as inspiration for this type of work. Yeah, and actually, I mean that that sort of goes along with something that's that's happening in the in the plot in the um, uh, the Beatles as this kind of symbol of freedom of expression are coming up against the Blue Meanies, who are sort of. But they they have something in common with authoritarian regimes, the sort of cultural vandals, the blue meanies, who basically like they don't they don't like music and they don't like joy and they don't like expression and lots and lots of real life authoritarian regimes tends to be quite common to them actually uh, are aware of the, the the cultural power the unifying power of things like music of things like dance you know uh you know all, all those dance movies where like a kid just wants to dance but like you know the uh, like the mayor of the local town has banned dancing and they have to do it in secret you know it's like <laughs> yeah. you know that happens in real life Matt. no it doesn't but <laughs> but, but, it, but it's based on the same idea that sort of artistic expression is a threat to authority you know and mm. uh and and particularly leads to i mean there, there was pandemonium whenever the Beatles came into town in in real life of course you know it's the kind of thing that's quite scary for an authoritarian regime it's like yeah. this is mayhem it's like we can't control this like what if this what what if this power was harnessed in some way against us you know, yeah you know? I, I, I like the idea that you know you're talking about Luminis having uh, or representing like an authoritarian regime yeah and also at the same time this film marking a departure for other animation at the time I like the fact uh, that, again, you can uncover with just a bare amount of digging that the art director, Heinz Edelman, uh, hated Disney movies. 
<laughs> and that's why a lot of the blue meanies actually have Mickey Mouse shaped uh, ears and uh, yeah. Mickey Mouse shaped hats and stuff on them. Right, and it, which is it, it just feels like they're they're so close to being sued, <laughs> you know, because it's it's quite blatant once you know it. But if you don't know it, then it just feels like part of the character design. Yeah. But if you um if you read that facts, um, you can't look at it now without being like, oh yeah, of course this this is quite a blatant uh, attack <laughs> on Disney. That's interesting, isn't it? Being being involved in animation in the 1960s and hating Disney. Yeah. You know, you you would have thought, well, this, it, like I said, this is Disney is dominating uh, animation, or at least mainstream animation, getting things released into cinemas at the time. But I suppose, you know, it, 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 it sounds to me like the animators hired to work on Yellow Submarine, like the team they got together were sort of like y- young, wacky, creative people mm. and probably a, a little bit, a little bit anti-establishment, you know, you get that impression. I think the um, the other thing that comes from, from it as well is that, uh, again, Heinz Edelman, who by all accounts actually had quite a lot of free reign in terms of the character designs, the, you know, the, the approach to all the animation, a lot of it comes directly from him. Yeah. And uh, he was born in Czechoslovakia. And uh, you were saying to me before the, we started recording this that you actually felt that some of the animation had a bit of an Eastern European quality to it, yeah. which I think is present. And I think you can understand how, I guess, in a, in a different, slightly different um, culture, you could see Disney as almost monopolizing that whole art medium. Yeah. And that you can grow resentful at that, and I think that's probably how that comes through. How how the blue meanies end up wearing the Mickey Mouse hats is just <laughs> sort of this this sort of um, uh, pushback on uh, on this almost like Hollywoodized version of uh, an art form that this uh, Heinz Edelman obviously felt very passionate about. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? That you know, if if he sort of uh, resents the homogenization of communism that that it, you know, that it, it also resents the homogenization of uh, of the, the capitalism of, of yes. disney you know yeah, yeah. it's sort of di- direct opposite he seems to have maybe found parallels between the two things yeah yeah, yeah. interesting there are so many interesting like animated sequences that are happening on the screen at all times. Yeah. Like you can't concentrate on everything all at once. Mm. Um, but there are some standout sequences. Yeah, uh, I think in the film, I think losing the sky of diamonds is one. Yes. Uh, from what I understand, the, um, the it's sort of an early form of of rotoscoping, which is which which became sort of a forerunner for some of the early CGI animation uh, in sort of later years with. The likes of Tron and the use of lightsabers, I think, were rotoscoped in the first film. Yeah. Um, but the idea is that you're colorizing frames at a time. And I think Lucy Sky Diamond's sequence is particularly spectacular because, from what I understand, the, the whole sequence was given to several animators to colorize in different ways. And then it was all put back together again. And you can see that there's just lots of different flourishes of color and flourishes of of like brush stroke and techniques yeah. in, in them and stuff. And it just makes for quite a dazzling, uh, makes for a, a sort of a dazzling sequence that I think lives up to the song, but in a way that you know, a, a, a lazier way of approaching this would be to literally have tangerine trees and marmalade skies on the screen. Yeah. Right. But they, they do it down that route. They, they, they have like this, a dance sequence that is brought to life through this sort of wonderful use of 
colour and paint. Yeah, and I think uh, my, my very, very dim understanding of, of how it was done is, so there's a sort of very early version of, like, you wouldn't call it motion capture, but basically, like, they are working on templates of sort of, like Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers and things like mm. that. The dance sequences are there, like that they're basically i'm gonna say tracing over i know there's more to it than that <laughs> but yeah. you know but they're just traces yeah, i mean aren't all animators traces really <laughs> exactly <laughs> get over yourselves <laughs> uh yeah and, and um it adds a real sort of human element to that most of the sort of human or sort of humanoid characters if you like um that you see in uh, yellow submarine are uh, they tend to be sort of quite static so uh, a lot of them, it, 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 you know, in this sort of Victorian garb, things like that, and they will be, uh, a lot of the time, they're just kind of standing and looking. And obviously, like, a lot of that is when they've been um, bonked on the head by, by an apple, and then, they, <laughs> and then they've turned grey and they need uh, waking back up to full colour, you know. But he, he, even when they are sort of awake, those characters it seem, seem to have been drawn in a static way and then bits mm. of their limbs move you know that's just how that bit of the animation works lucy in the sky with diamond sequence seems quite distinct from that there, there seems to be more movement in it there seems fluidity to be isn't there more like fluidity a, yeah. yeah yeah and you can see and actually you know take, taking sort of fred fred astaire and ginger rogers dance sequence i mean it's the best best way to achieve that yeah yeah of course it's interesting as well what you're saying there about sort of the the, the contrast I think with some of those animated uh, stars, I, I was thinking as you were saying that about the contrast between when we first see Pepperland, and then the animated sequence we see uh, that plays underneath Eleanor Rigby, yeah, which is when when we get to Liverpool for the first time, and this it, it's visually striking uh, how they create that contrast between the the magical wonder fantasy fairyland of Pepperland and what is very much thought of like a, a gritty working class view of liverpool yeah um but still with sort of fantastic elements to it yeah i think this is one of the interesting things about it the 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 way the animation and the plot work together is that you can think of this in a sense as a sort of magic realist piece i in in magic realism typically there'll be a character who lives in what we see as the real world who's Mm. then introduced to a, a fantasy world so say Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe or something like that, you know, where, mm. where you sort of go through some kind of portal, you know. So you could see this in that way whereby the Beatles in Liverpool are like normal people um, who then travel to Pepperland and that's the magic realism part of it. Um, that That isn't quite true because, of, as you say, there are fantastical elements to it mm. already while they're in Liverpool. When Fred goes to visit them at their house, there's the massive long corridor and sort of... A, a, egg cups and things like that and you know fly fly around the place and but but again only with the beatles so the the rest of liverpool is played relatively straight Mm. and i think that you know you mentioned lion rich and the wardrobe there i'm actually going to evoke a comparison you made in a previous episode about previous film and call that wizard of oz because you have this sort of um more sort of grim darkened almost black and white view of liverpool yeah uh, and it's through uh, connecting with the Beatles and the and the uh, the Beatles then embarking on this journey come to Pepperland that everything comes becomes full Technicolor. Yeah, that's how it feels. You know, the 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 it's the Beatles bringing everything into color, which I guess kind of mirrors a lot of people's relationship with the Beatles at that time, where they saw them from you know black and white uh, TV sets on say the Ed Sullivan Show, yeah. right the way through to the burst of color that came through with um, Sergeant Pepper's and 
psychedelia. Yeah, and and probably like probably quite common with how post-war Liverpool actually was. Mm. I mean, the, Liverpool was bombed horrifically during the war. I mean, the Beatles grew up playing on li- literal bomb sites. You know, just places that hadn't been rebuilt since the war. You know. And the the way the film kind of depicts Liverpool, more with the, the, this sort of like old sort of Georgian architecture, I suppose mainly, and then there are these sort of bits sort of poking out now and then that suggest a bit of life that's kind of going on underneath mm. it. You know, isn't it? It's no coincidence to find out that. It, so I mean, the first episode of Monty Python's Flying Circus came out in 1969, and um, Terry Gilliam has very obviously watched. Yellow Submarine. Yes. Right. Yeah, yeah. And and apparently the Eleanor Rigby sequence was a particular inspiration for him. Mm. And you can see that in that his style, at least the style he's using uh, in those Monty Python animations, is very similar in that it is taking sort of recognizably British things a lot of the time make, and then just making them very silly. You know, yes. So, it's, but but also in the actual technique of how he does that is you know through colorization of still pictures. Yeah, collage. Yeah, yes, and yeah. he animates, and also I go so far as to say, famously calling out, I guess, individual body parts. You know, and thinking about the foot, yeah. which is always the you know famous thing you think of there. I mean that there's there's definitely a parallel there between that and glove mm. from um uh, from the film. Uh, this idea of this sort of like isolated body part having a life of its own yeah. within the animation, like a disruptor within the animation as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. The other thing I like about the Eleanor Rigby sequence is because we've just been introduced to Pepperland uh, in itself, and then we see the stark contrast with the Eleanor Rigby sequence, you're already introduced to the idea of there's going to be different types of animation style in this film. Yeah. And, and I like that because it kind of sets up th- this idea that the you don't know what to expect from the film which I think it does keep constantly surprising you as yeah. you watch it yeah. I like that the Eleanor Rigby sequence was created from pictures of the art team that were making it at the time so a lot of the people you see on the screen are actually people who worked on the film that mm. were, had their photos taken and yeah, yeah. animated in and my other favourite part of um, that whole sequence is, is well after the after the Eleanor Rigby sequence the uh, young Fred goes to meet the Beatles, convince them to come with him to get in the Yellow Submarine. And as the Yellow Submarine launches, you have... Do you remember there's like a series of shots of almost like leaving Liverpool and London? Yeah, they're like they're postcards kind they're of, all, they, right? They are all postcards, yeah. Oh, okay. I love that. So there's yeah. a series of postcards that were then sort of almost like acting like a flicker book mm. of you know showing you leaving, I guess, like the skyline. Yeah. Um. Into what then becomes the the next part of the journey. Yeah. Yeah. Um. To start all, it, it's a it's another example of how individual sections within this film were picked up by different animators, who then just brought a, a completely new creative idea to each one. Mm. Um. And and what you end up is this mashup of different styles and techniques. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that that sequence that uses the postcards. When the yellow submarine is is launching, also uses the uh, a, a day in the life, That's right, the, yeah. you know the the orchestral thing where everyone's going up to reach their highest note. And actually, there was a film that we, it was Magic Christian, wasn't it? I think yes. used, used that as well. It did. That's right. Um, yeah. And so you know, Magic Christian being what a, a year after this. Well, Magic Christian didn't use the orchestral like rise. There was a shot when they came out of the Magic Christian boat and realized that they were in London. Mm. 
the the realization of that comes with that last note oh the big chord yes at the end yeah. oh okay okay the uh yeah it, it you know it, it it feels to me like it's quite c- cinematic you know without i mean you know it's been used in a film yeah so <laughs> therefore it's cinematic but but what i'm trying to say is without meaning to they've created uh something that perfectly encapsulates through sound the idea of sort of careening towards sort of spinning further and further out of control and careening towards something and um, not knowing where you're going to end up uh it, it, like and it's it, it and it's quite and it's quite scary in a way you know yeah it can, it can be very very unsettling hearing that music it makes complete sense it makes yeah you're right it makes complete sense for that sequence because again i think it speaks of the unpredictability of the film because mm. you, you don't know what you're heading towards when you yeah. hear that music yeah yeah one other sequence I wanted to call out, I don't know if you have any others, but one other sequence I wanted to call out was um, the When I'm 64 sequence because yeah. I think it might even be my favourite one in the whole film because I enjoy that it comes up with you know just a, a sentence of explanation as to how many minutes there are in 64 years. Yeah. And then it says, a minute is a long time, we'll demonstrate. And the O in demonstrate then changes to a one and then a two and a three. And then you have this sequence of counting from zero to 60 yeah and each set of 10 numbers within the 60 seconds is animated in a different way yeah whilst other stuff is happening around it as well and i and again i think a i think that it seems to me like they would have given different animators a set of numbers to deliver yeah uh, in their in whatever style they choose yeah which is what's happened yeah but also i think I don't really know how this relates in terms of timings with the pop art movement, mm. but it feels to me like this film has a lot of words and letters and numbers that appear on screen in artistic ways yeah. that feels familiar to that genre of art. Yeah. You know, it, I I wonder how often before this film's released you'd have this level of animation applied to typography and what I consider to be more of like a graphical design uh, element. Yeah. You know, you've got these like big words like no written on the, uh, on the hills in Pepperland with like in, in perspective, yeah. big block letters and things like that. And it's, it's quite, again, it's quite striking. Yeah, definitely. The, the way that that sequence plays out with, with the numbers appearing on the screen in, in different ways is like, it seems to me a, Pretty clear influence on Sesame Street. Sesame Street, I think, starts in the early seventies. I'm going to yes, say about seventy two so. or something like that. Really reminded me of the, the pinball sequence in Sesame Street. The <laughs> that you look at, I can tell you don't remember this, but that's fine. Like uh, the, <laughs> the, 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 uh, the yeah, the, the, there's a pinball going round. And it goes one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, and they're showing you the numbers on the screen. Before my time, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Whereas, whereas Yellow Submarine, yeah. right in my bullhorn, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. And I think uh, Sesame Street has lots of that stuff. 
uh, of, of just you know p- putting numbers on screen mm. in, in a way that is sort of artistically satisfying as well as like, educational as well as educational yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah interesting yeah. yeah and i guess maybe that also speaks to the appeal to kids with this film as well because yeah. there is you know it's easy to track those sequences yeah i think like that when i'm 64 sequence also it's a really good example of the way the songs are used as a musical uses songs i.e there is a narrative problem that the characters solve through singing a song yeah so through whatever mechanism it is where they're traveling the wrong way through time and then john sort of sets that i think they've they've been de-aged and then John like, sets the clock going the right way again, but it goes too fast. So they start aging and growing really long beards very quickly. And then they start singing When I'm 64, which effectively solves the problem. Mm, like the yeah. singing of the song solves the problem. Um, and like the lyrics don't need to address the fact that we are we are aging and we need to address this problem. It's, it's that the singing of a song that is thematically like on the same lines is, is it like gets them past it and that's enough. You know? Yes, yeah, yeah. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. We've talked a lot about the music and the animation and the voice cast. Mm. We haven't yet talked about the brief time we actually see the Beatles actually in the film. Yeah. Right at the very end. First of all, here's a question for you. Is it enough? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, so apparently they, they, they were quite detached from the whole process of the making of the film. When they saw the first cut of it or whatever version they saw, they liked it a lot. And they volunteered to mm. film this quick thing in order to be in the film at the end. Uh, so they filmed it on 25th of January, 1968. This is about three weeks before they go to Rishikesh for the first yeah. time. Um, so, you know, you get the impression this is just one of those things where they can just go to a film studio for a day, film this and be done with it. You know? Yeah. And, yeah. Um, yeah it, it, well, like it's, it's enough for me. Yeah. I mean, like there's a, the interesting question to consider with Yellow Submarine is like, does it suffer for their not being involved more? Would it have been better if they had done the voices themselves? I don't think it would have mattered, would it? Do you think? No, I, no, no, I don't, I don't really? think it would have mattered. Actually, I think there probably would have been a fair bit of the dialogue that they probably wouldn't have wanted to do. Yeah, true. interesting thing about so the the script I think was initially a bit too sort of American. Roger McGough, sort of Liverpool poet, um, who was also a bandmate of Mike McCartney in The Scaffold, brought in to sort of scouse up the dialogue a bit. 
which he did. So I guess, you know, the sort of wor- the wordplay, I guess, comes from him. And there's a lot of that. There's lots and lots of that, you know. And so like these are bits of wordplay that aren't necessarily puns. They are bits where he's sort of playing with opposites, you know, where, where George sort of says to Ringo, is there a matter you'd like to bring up or down? Uh, yeah. That kind of thing where like, it's a lot like how McCartney apparently wrote Hello Goodbye lyrically is just taking opposites. I, I, um, my favourite in the film was when they reached the foothills of the headlands. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Really like that. Yeah, so, so those things are neat, but I feel like if the Beatles themselves had been given that script, the, 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 as we were saying in the previous episode, the Yellow Submarine has contributed to caricatures of the Beatles, and in particular the way the Beatles speak, that persist to this day. And I think if it actually had been them speaking themselves, mm. that would not have happened in quite the same way. So I don't think they would have been too keen on doing the script uh, as it was. I think a lot of those kind of scousisms they probably would have thought rang a little bit flat. Yeah, sure. Because, uh, and I mean, it, it, in a live action film, they would have been able to ad lib that a little exactly, bit. Exactly, yeah. You can't ad lib <laughs> when you're recording uh, uh, voice for animation. Uh, maybe you can a bit. As is the case, you get the impression they've ad libbed the sequence at the end when they do appear. Yeah. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of. Um, like sometimes you can feel a little bit impenetrable do you find this like when they're sort of riffing off each other yeah. and I kind of feel like this is it's, it's almost a bit clicky you know yeah. like it makes you feel like Michael Lindsay Hogg doesn't it like, yes <laughs> 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 yes exactly yeah um, I, I, I like the sequence at the end I like when Ringo says that he has a hole in his pocket well half a hole I gave the other bits to Jeremy yeah and John goes extremely extra with his... Um, there are more blue meanies in the vicinity of this theatre. Yeah. I, I kind of like it because it feels a little bit like they are set apart from the film itself, but just connected enough to... like. We're, I think we're all in on the joke when they come on screen. Yes. right. The idea that the adventure we've just seen was actually them, and look, here are some props to prove it. Like, we've got the motor and yeah. all that stuff. But we are in the joke, in on the joke, because we know that that's not the case, and we get to laugh with them for pretending that that's what happened. Mm. You know, like I think that's, uh, I think the reason why that part of the film works is because it feels like we are joining in the joke with the Beatles. Yes, uh, and it's just a bit madcap, isn't it? It's just them just um, going a bit crazy for what is probably about forty seconds. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. There's so much of their previous film work you could categorize under general mucking about you know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh and they were excellent at mucking about you know yeah yeah, yeah very much it's it actually makes me uh wonder a little bit on the subject of mucking about uh how much the makers of yellow submarine had sort of when magical mystery tour came out which would have been in the middle of them making this film yeah uh watched that and thought Oh God, good! Like uh, so, like, like this is uh, this has very little narrative structure. Everything's a bit weird and yeah, psychedelic. That's true. Like the the thing we've been doing fits with this quite closely. Yeah. Phew! What a relief. <laughs> um, but here's a question for you: A magical mystery tour when it came out, critically reviled. Yeah. Uh, Yellow submarine, not so. Yep. What What do we think the difference is between uh, why the 
the receptions of the two films. So I think the fact that it's an animation creates a little bit of necessary distance. Um, so at the time, Post Magical Mystery Tour, uh, it's obviously their first sort of big critical flop. And then I think with them sort of going off to India and the general perception that they're getting a bit weird now, I, I think the press are not the biggest Beatles fans at the time. Uh, you know, they are getting a bit, a, a bit of a bit of a slagging. Yellow Submarine allows you to get away with more because it because it's a cartoon. So like things that uh, the problems that people would have seen in Magical Mystery Tour, which is you know there for all to see really, like it, that it's that it has no real narrative structure or cohesion to speak of. Is does you could you could aim the same argument at Yellow Submarine. Um, the fact that it's a cartoon. It just it allows you to get away with that a bit more easily, I suppose. I think you, yeah, I suppose you're right. I, I, I guess there's probably a little bit more narrative for Yellow Submarine, isn't it? There is an overall plot of yeah. Blue Minions and it needs to be vanquished. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I do wonder is, uh, because it's an animation, you almost have the defence of saying, well, it's for kids, even though it's not really, as we've established, and we, you know, we don't think it was made with that necessarily in mind. Yeah. But I think audiences at the time and critics at the time would forgive it a lot on the basis that you know maybe the intention was for it to be for a different audience yeah um just means it gets away with um you know being a bit silly uh on that basis even though it wasn't technically true at the time yeah yeah i think maybe also um yellow submarine uh it contains new songs but also contains a lot of songs that the public already know and, yes. and like a lot. That's true. Yeah. So, it, so it's got Eleanor Rigby, and it's got all you need is love, and it's got whatever else, um, you know. But like the, the songs that people, uh, Nowhere Man, you know, so songs that the public yeah. have already heard and are familiar with. So I suppose maybe it feels is a, a bit more of a sort of comfort blanket in, in that element of um, oh, good, okay, I know this one, I like this song, you know, I can, it, I can go along with this. Not you know, it, as we discussed in the Magical Mystery Tour <laughs> episode. But hearing some of those magical mystery tour songs for the first time, some of which are quite challenging, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know things like Blue Jay Way, you know, let's say, you know, yeah, um, it, it, I can imagine like that. That must have been uh, a slightly sour note for people who um, were, were not that into it already, you know. Um, whereas this, you know, this has lots of songs that you know and you can sing along to. Not, not least Yellow Submarine itself. Yes, know? of course, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it makes the film a lot more accessible than Magical Mystery Tour was, uh, and still is. <laughs> um, we, we talked a little bit before about how the film is actually groundbreaking and is cited as an influence for a lot of sort of modern filmmakers and modern animators now. I think John Lasseter of Pixar, so you know he was directly responsible for uh, the early Pixar movies like Toy Story, and so, so he's always said that the Yellow Submarine was a a, a big influence on him as an animator. So I, I think you know I think because of the film's accessibility, and because of how groundbreaking it was, and this legacy that it then has afforded filmmakers working today. It means that it holds a sort of certain cachet that Magical Mystery Tour doesn't have. Yeah. A really clear proof point of that is no one's ever tried to remake Magical Mystery Tour. (laughs) That is true. But there were plans to remake Yellow Submarine. Yes. So in 2009, I think it was first announced that Robert Zemeckis was going to uh, remake Yellow Submarine. Yep. Ultimately, that fell apart. 
I think. So it got quite far in, in pre-production at least. So they, he'd cast all the voices. Uh, I think most notably uh, for me at least, Peter Serafinovich was cast as Paul. Yeah. Um, have we had this conversation before? Am I right in thinking that you think that Peter Serafinovich is very good at doing all of the individual Beatles voices? Yeah, he. Uh, well, his his John Lennon is 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 probably the best John Lennon impression I've heard. That's right. In that 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 thing that uh, like we often say about Ian Hart doing mainly the more acerbic version of how John spoke, Serafinovich can really do the sort of softer, more funny, playful version of him as well. Like it's yeah. really, it's really spot on. Uh, and yet he was cast as Paul. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a misstep. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, and and I think we even mentioned before on a previous episode about the tribute act Fab Four. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were cast to to I, I guess to, as the templates to animate the band uh, as they were playing yeah, each song. Because this was going to be sort of mainly motion capture technology, you know. Yes. So so yeah. So it's worth explaining that um, Robert Zemeckis had uh, this. Uh, this studio or studio imprint called Image Movies Digital, um, which was producing uh, things like the Polar Express. Then he produced uh, there was a version of A Christmas Carol and a film called uh, Mars Need, Needs Moms. Yes, uh, Moms, yes. <laughs> which, did, which didn't do so well. But I think the public kind of ultimately rejected this technology. You know, if you if you watch, if you watch Polar Express, it's got some lovely elements to it, but... I, I don't know. There are bits of it where I, I I can see where there's a sort of attempt to make things look a bit too human uh, it, in a way that just doesn't quite make... Like, it's not recognisably human and it's not that recognisably a cartoon. It's certainly... If it's not where the phrase was invented, it's certainly what popularised the phrase Uncanny Valley. Right. Like this, right. this idea of Polar Express starring a train conductor who happened to be wearing the skinned face of Tom Hanks as a mask. <laughs> like, <laughs> what, pe- you think children wouldn't but, like this? <laughs> but peeking out behind that face with dead glass eyes. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And I think that by all accounts, the Yellow Submarine as a, as a remake got halted because of the box office performance of those films not being as high as Disney wanted. Mm. But at the same time, the reaction to that that motion capture and that, that overall look of that type of animation not being quite up to scratch. So yeah. there was a real critical backlash against that sort of motion capture look and it's and it being a bit creepy. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think maybe they were a bit unlucky in that uh, in terms of where the technology was at the time, that was kind of what it could achieve. Yes, and so agreed, probably yeah. it, probably anyone trying to take this technology forward, saying, "Hey, this is the big new thing," was probably going to crash and burn as it was. But they they weren't that far away in years from the motion capture technology we have now. No, absolutely um, not. No, and and you know, they think of motion capture being used, you know, in terms of. Uh, Lords of the Rings films, obviously, any Andy Serkis film like The Rise of the Planet of the Apes, yeah. uh, and probably also most recently Avatar. We need James Cameron to be making uh, remaking Yellow Submarine. Yeah, I want yeah. the Yellow Submarine to turn up in Pandora and Avatar: <laughs> Way of Water. Yeah. In many ways, uh, the Navi with the real blue meanies of. <laughs> <laughs>
Going back to the casting of uh, Robert Zemeckis' ill-fated Yellow Submarine remake, a couple of other interesting names are in the mix. Carrie Elwes was cast as... George Harrison. It was cast as George, was he? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so Carrie Elwes, um, you'll know mostly from Princess Bride, yep. but also he was in Robin Hood Men in Tights and uh, the very first Saw movie. He's been in a whole bunch of stuff. But also most interesting to me as a Doctor Who fan is uh, David Tennant was in talks to voice the Chief Blue Meanie, which I think would have been quite fun. Oh, right, okay. I Don't think he would have been quite... I, I think he's you know, it's the kind of actor that can really go all out in a role like that and you know really like chew the scenery and, and do all those things that you want sort of actors to do when they're playing like a bit of a wild card character. Yeah, I suppose the, the whole idea of remaking a Beatles film... Obviously, if you're going to do it, Yellow Submarine is the only one you really could yeah. do. You know, you can't. I love the idea of trying to remake Hard Day's Night with different people as the Beatles. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, like whatever approach you took to that, you would lose the magic that they brought to it. So I think if there was a Yellow Submarine remake, as we said, that sort of motion capture technology has sort of come on leaps and bounds. So actually, like that technology is now being used to sort of. But actors who have died, or or sort of, or actors who are older and de-aging them, to sort of put them in films to appear younger or to appear alive. Um, so, if you think of Robert De Niro being de-aged in The Irishman, and you think Indiana Jones, Harrison Ford in the new Indiana Jones movie, he's been de-aged significantly in that film for oh, really? a whole for a whole sequence at the start of the film. Really? So we're recording this at a time when that hasn't been released yet, but the whole first sequence in that movie is of Indiana Jones as he is in the first uh, movie Red is the Lost Ark and oh. he's and so there, in the trailer you can see shots of Harrison Ford de-aged and he looks exactly as he did really then. it's really good wow okay and Marvel used the de-aging technology a lot obviously for a lot of their characters so Michael Douglas um, yeah. is obviously older in, in the Ant-Man films but there are some scenes of him from back in like the 80s and he's been de-aged to look exactly as he did as Gordon Gecko, yeah. it's just great, like really, really brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Uh, really brilliant use of that technology, and it always looks pretty flawless. I think. Yeah, yeah. That's so you know, uh, you could produce a new Yellow Submarine. You could produce a new Hard Day's Night if you wanted to, but like um, by get, getting actors to play John and George, getting Paul and Ringo to play themselves, and de-aging them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, the, the the sheer amount of effort you would have to put into it does raise the question. What's the point? Yeah, why? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I think not just the effort, but what is the point anyway? Well, so, but the interesting thing about that is because I think there there would be an argument for remaking Yellow Submarine if you're going to do something interesting with it. Yeah, you know, because the as wonderfully imaginative as all of the animation is on Yellow Submarine the film is still restricted to the technology that it had at its disposal at, it, at that time mm. and and to its budget that it had, which was obviously very low at mm. the time. Uh, if you're going to remake a film like that, where you can let your imagine, imagination run wild and you have the budget and the technology to really, you know, b- bring out some of those wonderful elements in full 3D CGI, photorealistic, then... I guess there's an, an argument that would be quite an interesting experience. Yeah. You know, in answer to the question, why would you need to? Yeah. Maybe that is an answer. Like maybe to, to introduce the film and those songs to a new audience in a way that 
you know, my kids probably wouldn't sit and watch Yellow Submarine, 1968's Yellow Submarine, but maybe they would be interested in watching 2023's Yellow Submarine. I feel like you're not happy about that at all. <laughs> I've never liked your kids. <laughs> I tell you what, Robert Zemeckis is going to be kicking himself if it turns out Peter Jackson's next project is a remake of Yellow Submarine. <laughs> yeah, inevitably. <laughs> Right, I think we should probably leave things there. I think we've just about covered everything we wanted to discuss about 1968's Yellow Submarine. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed listening to this two-part episode. That is it for this episode, but it's also it for this season of the Beatles Films podcast. We will be back again for another season soon, but until then, we would urge everyone to follow us on all the usual social media platforms at Beatles Films Pod to not only find out when we will be returning with a new roster of films to discuss, but also to be the first to find out about a few other special episodes we've got coming up very soon. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed any of the episodes in this season or previous seasons or this two-part discussion on the Yellow Submarine, please feel free to leave us a review uh, or a five-star rating on your podcast listening platform of choice. Otherwise, we'll see you again very soon. And until then, bye-bye. Bye-bye.